Hey, cheers. cheers. <laughs> All right, let's pull up those notes. Like I said, we've, uh, I told you a couple of days ago, uh, we've never written down a list of questions for anyone that's come on the podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we, we kind of needed to for uh, a moment like this. Uh, so yeah, I'm not going to read from this. <laughs> I'll try. I'll do my best. I'm sure I'll have more to say about some of those than, uh, than about others. others, but what the hell. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to ask, when did you move here? Because we're in Santa Fe right now. I don't know if right, everyone Fe, listening knows the, the land I, I of the I moved chant. here uh, right at the end of 1979. <clears throat> you know, I was born in Bayonne, New Jersey. I spent, uh, you know, pretty much the first 18 years of my life there until I went away to college, um, which was at Northwestern, Chicago area. And uh, I was there five years, getting, getting a bachelor's and then a master's. And then I stayed in Chicago even after I... Uh, graduated from Northwestern for a number of years until uh, about um, 76 uh, when I took a teaching job in Dubuque, Iowa. And mm. I went there for about three and a half years uh, teaching journalism at a small Catholic girls' college in Dubuque. Um, I sold my first story in 1971 and continued to sell stories throughout the 70s, more and more, and getting more attention. But I always had to have a day job. Um, you know, for a couple of years in the early 70s, I was a VISTA volunteer doing alternative service. And uh, then uh, I, I directed chess tournaments. I'd done a lot of uh, playing chess in high school and college. Um, but uh, the money I earned was not as a player, but as a tournament director. There was this big chess boom in America when Bobby Fischer defeated Boris right. Spassky. Right, so, yeah. um, so that was a good job for me because, you know, normally writers, um, they're working a day job five days a week, and then they write two days that they have the weekend. For me, it was the reverse. The tournaments were always on the weekends. So I worked on Saturday and Sunday, and then I had all five days to 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 write. But I still wasn't making enough to to live off it, even at a relatively poverty level. Um, so I took the teaching job, um, and, and then um, you know I like teaching. I, I like the kids. Um, I like Dubuque, which was an interesting sort of town. Um, a lot of history there. There's a big steamboat town where I got the inspiration to write my novel, Fever Dream, uh, getting into all of the, the history of the great steamboat era. Um, but I had, a, I had a friend who lived in uh, Texas. And uh, when I was in Dubuque the first few years, I thought, um, well, this is good, and I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, and I have all these books and stories I want to write, but I'm young. There's plenty of time for that. I'll, I'll, I'll teach for a while and then, you know, write on summer vacations and weekends. But uh, my friend was a writer named Tom Remy, um, about 10 years older than me. Um, he'd been a big science fiction fan for a long time, um, and he worked in Hollywood, but as a as a prop guy, not as a writer, doing props on various uh, um, movies, low-budget movies, and and things like that. And then he came back to, uh, he was from Texas, but he came back to Kansas City, and he started writing fiction, and he was an instant hit. I mean, he was, he was one of the hottest writers around. He was writing some great stories. He was nominated uh, and won the John W. Campbell Award, which was uh, given for the best new writer in the field. He won that at 1977 in... Uh, the Worldcon in uh, Florida, um, Miami Beach, SunCon. 
And, uh, you know, he was, he had written his first novel and sold it. Um, he was writing more award-winning stories. Uh, he really seemed to have a great career, uh, ahead of him. And then one day he had a massive heart attack and died at his typewriter. He was found with his face, face down in the keys, uh, seven pages into a new story, like a perfect writer's death, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. yeah. But it really shook me because Tom was, I was a, about 32 at the time, and Tom was 42 when he died. And suddenly I started thinking, maybe I don't have all the time in the world to write all of these uh, books and stories I want to write. Maybe maybe I should roll the dice and go full-time and see if I can survive. And I decided to do that. So I, I you know, gave up my teaching position, and once I'd done that, I could move anywhere I want. You know, as a, as a writer, you, you don't have to report to work every day. You don't have to have any kind of physical proximity. And I had seen Santa Fe the previous year. And uh, when I was uh, on the road, making a, a road trip, like we were talking about earlier, uh, a, a month and a half long road trip from Dubuque down to uh, Phoenix, where the Worldcon was in 78. Um, and I'd really liked it. So I said, oh, I'll move down to uh, Santa Fe. And, uh, and I did. I got here in December of 79. And Immediately got hooked on green chili and sopapillas and uh, <laughs> found myself unable to leave. And I've uh, been here ever since. I mean, I have had times where I've spent more time out in Los Angeles than I have in Santa Fe. I ha had years there in the 80s and 90s, when I, which was the time I was working most in television, where I would spend 10 months of the year in L.A., but I always had the house in Santa Fe, and my wife Paris would, would stay here and hold down the fort, and I would go out and rent a furnished apartment or stay in somebody's guest house or something until whatever show or movie I was working on wound up, and then I'd head right back to Santa Fe. Is there a point, so you talk about you know realizing you could work from anywhere, you could be a full-time writer, um, taking that plunge. Was there a point when you realized that this is a stable, well, I guess stable is not the right word to say, but this is a viable career. Like you can make a living off of creating art. Well, I there were um, a couple points where I had that delusion. <laughs> but as I tell young writers, it's it's not stable. Right. And it, it is a uh, it is a gambler's profession. And I I did learn that um, you know, during the during the course of my career. Um and I've been, you know, I'd, when talking to young writers about what they need to be a success, I, I usually hit on three things. I think you need you need talent, obviously. Uh, you need a certain amount of professionalism or craft <clears throat> because raw talent just won't do it for you. And you need luck. Um, and I was very lucky at a number of points. I could look back on my career and, and see how many times I was in the right place at the right time, or I made the right decision when, you know, other friends of mine made the wrong decision. Um, but a lot of it was, was, um, hopefully, you know, my talent and professionals had a lot to do with it, but there was also luck. But despite all of that, my career has crashed and burned at least twice because you can't, <laughs> you can't always roll seven. Right. You can't, they're not always going to deal you a, a, a straight flush here. Um, so you have to persist and, and get through the, the bad times. But, you know, I began 
you know, selling my first story in 71 and then selling a lot of other stories and being nominated for awards, most of which I lost, but just being nominated was a great honor. And, you know, I enjoyed a, a decade of being a hot young writer. And when I finally started writing novels, um, I got much bigger advanced. And I mean, if I'd sold my first novel just two years earlier, the advance would have been one tenth the size, mm. which you you couldn't live on even in the even in the seventies. Right. Um, but I was in the right place at the right time, uh, totally accidentally. And then I got higher and higher advances for for each of my books, and you know it was like the world was my oyster until suddenly I had a book that failed um, and did not sell, and then suddenly I couldn't get arrested. So. It can turn on you in an instant, and that's true in Hollywood too, even even more so. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I had that crisis um, back around, I guess that was around 84, 85, and then um, I got involved in Hollywood, and I had a, a good run there, but once again, uh, around 92, 93, 94, uh, that all evaporated, and once again, I crashed and burned. So I think... There are two. <laughs> there are two factors to this career. Um, one of them is the struggle to to create art, to to tell a story that people will read and enjoy, and that hopefully will be reread and remembered and discussed for long beyond your death. You know, I think that's the dream of many writers, not all, but many. I think to do that, and that's entirely separate from the struggle to make a bloody living and right. to be able to pay your rent and, you know, not wind up pushing a cart down, <laughs> down the street with all your worldly possessions in it. Um, and sometimes the two are at odds with each other and it's, uh, you know, it's difficult to, uh, to handle them. So, um, it's a, it's a life for someone who doesn't mind having a, a little, a little risk. The one thing I'll say though is it's never boring, right? I mean, you're, you're. Uh, I think even uh, we have uh, one of my minions here, Sid, and I have other people that I employ, and I think they can testify. It's it. You never know what's coming. It's not like every day is the same, like when you you know get a job in a accountant's firm or a law firm, and, uh -huh. and you know you you labor at it for thirty years, and then you get a gold watch and retire. It's never going to be that, but. Uh, uh, there'll be good things. There'll be bad things. Um, always throwing stuff at you, but it's worked out. I seem to be in a, a <laughs> fairly good place here. <laughs> We're sitting inside of your movie theater right now. Not everyone's got one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's cool. You said the the first time you you say that it crashed and burned was in '84, so that was after Armageddon Rag. Yeah. What do you mean? Armageddon Rag was the book that uh, that turned it for me. I mean, it was it was supposed to be, it was my fourth novel, and uh, it was not a not published by a science fiction line. It was published to be a even though it has fantasy, it has dark fantasy elements and horror elements, but it's about rock and roll and the, and the sixties, and um, it has a bit of a murder mystery thing. There's a guy who's murdered at the beginning, so it was a real blend of uh, several different genres. Um, and it, it, it got a six figure advance. First time I'd gotten one of those, that was very impressive to me. Um, and I'd written it in about a year. Okay. And then I made a idiotic 
thought, which was, hmm, I now make $100,000 a year. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> because, you know, you have to do it again next year, the year exactly. after that. I wasn't doing that. Um, uh, so it keeps, you know, <laughs> it keeps shrinking. But um, the novel, my publishers wanted to, it to be my big breakout novel. And indeed, it was nominated for the World Fantasy Award. And it got some great reviews from some major review outfits. This was long before the internet, of course, so you didn't get like a million reviews. But you, got, but you looked at, oh, what is this Los Angeles paper is going to say about it? What are they going to say in Chicago and all that? You're, you're following the newspaper reviews. Kirk as Publishers Weekly it got, got good reviews, but basically nobody bought it. It was the worst selling of my novels, which had been going up till then. And um, it, it just died. Um, I guess maybe because it was too cross-genre. It was... It was not fantasy enough for the fantasy fans. It was not scary enough for the horror fans. It was not mysterious enough for the mystery fans. And the rock and roll fans don't buy books. So, <laughs> Too rock and roll? <laughs> yeah. So there you were. I don't know. Um, I'm still glad I wrote it. but um, And there are people who love it. But uh, And, you know, I went in the space of a few months, I went from being, you know, this, this hot young writer who was – dancing on the edge of bestsellerdom to somebody who couldn't sell his next book. And um, that was uh, that was pretty scary. So it's just like that the one book didn't perform that the way that, the way that they wanted it to, and they were just like, all right, we're not going to give you another advance for another book. Like no one else would take the bait. No, we, we offered it to, we offered my next book, which was, uh, um, again, different, um, to a whole bunch of publishers, and no one... Uh, no one bid on it, so um, yeah. So you went and started to make television shows, basically. Uh, yeah, and that was oddly um, a, a consequence. You know, this is where the, the the luck thing comes into it. Yes, Armageddon Rag did not sell um, commercially, but it did have its fans, and one of the fans was a guy named Phil DeGuerre, who was a television writer-producer. Uh, he'd come out of the Stephen J. Cannell, um, you know, studio. He'd worked on a number of Cannell shows, and then he uh, climbed the ranks and he started making his own shows, one of which was a hit, a show called Simon and Simon, which Phil created and was a big hit. And uh, then he created a show called Whiz Kids, which was not as big a hit, but it was like the first show about computer geeks on television, you know, um, and uh, CBS, in particular, was very enamored of Phil. And they said, oh, what would you like to do next? Uh, and he said, I'd like to bring back Twilight Zone. Um, now, I had known Phil because when Armageddon Rank came out, he, he bought the rights to make it a film. Uh, like many television writers, he wanted to get into feature films, and he wanted to get not just as a writer, but also as a director. So, And he was a big rock and roll fan. He was a big deadhead in particular. Mm. Um, so, um, he had plans to, to, uh, how to do Armageddon rank, you know, one of the challenges in, and of course we're talking here in mid eighties, so there's no computer animation uh, that, that, that whole thing is in its infancy or even before its infancy. And one of the challenges of Armageddon rank is there are a number of scenes that are at giant Woodstock sized rock concerts. Well, how do you do that? without computer animation and and Phil had a great way to do it, which was to 
hook up with the dead and to film <laughs> to film the concert no scenes way. at That's dead so concerts. Cool, yeah. Um, you know, his idea was we would make up, you know, there's a fictional band called the Nazgul. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, well, we'll make up uh, thousands of Nazgul t-shirts. Yeah. We'll give them away free at a dead concert. Oh, man. And tell people to put them on and the dead will play. And then when the dead take their break, the actors who are playing the Nazgul will wow. come on stage. Wow. And we'll have the uh, thousands of people there to do that. So he wrote he wrote two drafts of it, uh, and but, but he never got as as many movies and TV shows do. You know they you're dependent on the money guys to to finance it, and he never got anyone to uh, green light green light it. But I got to know Phil through that. So when CBS said you want to revive the Twilight Zone, um, he did something that um, I, I still you know it's it's one of these. Uh, luck things that I said where I, I was really entirely fortuitous, but mostly when you're a showrunner in Hollywood and you're staffing up your show, you hire other experienced television directors, television writers, rather. You hire other television writers to bring them in because you want someone who knows the form and all that. Phil decided to depart from that. He decided, uh, I'm not just going to get a bunch of guys who've worked on six other television shows. I'm not going to bring over the guys from Simon & Simon or or from the Canal studio. Uh, this is a show about science fiction fantasy. I'm going to bring in a bunch of science fiction fantasy people and see what they can give me. People who had never written for television before. And I was not the only one, but I was one of about, uh, I don't know, eight or so young. Uh, I was young once. Um, <laughs> the science fiction and, and fantasy people he, he reached out to and said, hey, I'm bringing back to Twilight Zone. You want to come aboard, do some scripts for us? And I said, well, I, don't, I don't know what I, I mean, I watch television. I've right. never, never thought of writing for television. I don't even know what a script looks like. I said, ah, we'll send you some. So he sent me a bunch of scripts and I looked at it. Yeah, I could probably do this. Um, and uh, next thing I knew, I was, uh, I, I wrote a script. They liked it. And then suddenly I was hired to be on staff and I headed out there. And it was good because, you know, my my money was running out. That hundred thousand dollars <laughs> year after year was uh, getting less and less. And, uh, I had a second mortgage on my house, uh, and uh, I was living on my credit cards. But you know, then uh, Twilight Zone came to my rescue, and uh, so uh, it's all weird when I look back on it. But I did. I wound up doing five scripts for Twilight Zone. And then I went right from Twilight Zone to Max Headroom, where unfortunately my scripts were not produced, but I did write a kind of a script and a half. And then uh, that show died too fast, I think. Sadly, it was a oddly prophetic show. And then uh, Beauty and the Beast for three years. Um, I did 13 scripts for them. And then uh, after that, I had climbed the famous Hollywood ladder, which you do, you know, you start as... You start as a staff writer. That was my first position. You know, staff writer is like the lowest position on a on a television show because it's the only job that has writer in the title. Thank <laughs> 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 it. So I went from staff writer to story editor to executive story editor to co-producer. Some of these Hollywood titles are very amusing. You know, right. like, executive is like an extra stripe. So an executive story editor is better than mm. a story editor. Okay, <laughs> yeah, you get a little fancier. But then you move up into the P words. Uh, you know, then you're a producer, right? Um, but I started out being a co-producer. 
Now, co is a negative version of executive. <laughs> co is like one rank below. So a co-producer is under a producer. <laughs> you can't okay, do yeah. it alone. And, you know, I, at the time, I, I, I did not, uh, I mostly spoke English and not television. So I said, how can I be a co-producer when there is no other co-producer? Right. Doesn't co-producer yeah. imply yeah. Right. <laughs> two? Right. Yeah. Okay. But no, I was the only co-producer uh-huh. on the show for, you know, a year or half a year, whatever it was. They're just trying to check you a little bit. And then I got promoted to, (laughs) you know, producer. And then above that, co-supervising producer. (laughs) Like I like producer better. There was no co. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. (laughs) We've had so much experience in both television, in writing, in both long form and in short stories. Can you talk about how you've balanced creating all this art versus the business side of it, especially when you think about, you know, translating your stories for the screen. How do you balance staying true to your art or true to your vision versus kind of what audience are expecting or what, I don't speak television, so like what people who are paying you to make stuff are expecting. What's that balancing act like? Um, it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Um, because it's it it's always changing and and every show is it is different you know i mean my first job on twilight zone uh when they put me on staff as opposed to freelancers i i had a six-week contract that was one of the i mean paris and i were discussing it here saying well should we move to los angeles and saying we we have a house here yeah it has two mortgages on it and we almost lost it but (laughs) nonetheless we, we have a house here we're gonna sell our house Moved to Los Angeles and buy a much smaller house in Los Angeles, which is more expensive, or are we going to rent or, and my deal is up in six weeks. Right. Then what the hell am I going to do if the show is not renewed or they don't like me, they fire me, you know? So that's, that's very challenging and, and everything you learn, um, can vary. I mean, a lot of things I learned on Twilight Zone that I'm on another show and I got a different showrunner, different network. They do things differently. So, oh, I, I thought this was the way to do it. No, no, this is the way to do it. That This guy likes it done this way. So, um, <clears throat> and then, of course, we're now in 2022 and it, it doesn't run the way it did in 1987. There have been a lot of changes over, over the years. We're living in an age of, uh, well, we had, I was in, my first go around television was the age of networks. And then we entered the age of cable. And now we're in the age of streamers. And God knows what's next. And th- things keep changing. The whole career path keeps changing. I mean, I, I sometimes talk to groups of young writers and try to advise them. And it's like, well, here's what you would have done if this was 1987. But I don't know if that works anymore. So maybe you have to do this thing instead. And, mm-hmm. uh, it is uh it is challenging um and you know every it's one industry they call it the industry out there but every company is is different hbo doesn't work the same way that cbs did mm-hmm. uh and and uh you know cbs didn't work the way that netflix works today and and probably Netflix and HBO would be very different. It's and and the showrunners, yeah. It's it's um, uh, it's even more challenging, I think, than publishing in in some ways. And it's a it 
it's a collaborative art form because you're, you know, you are working with a lot of other people who are very talented and creative too, some of them anyway. Um, and that can be great. That can be really exciting. I mean, working, I've had a lot of luck there too. I mean, working on a, a, a show like, uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast with, uh, Actors like Roy Dotrice, uh, who became a, a friend of mine, and Ron Perlman, um, you know, Linda Hamilton for the first two seasons. Um, we, we had amazing composers. We had a cinematographer who was first rate, you know. You got great people working with you, but you, you that's great as long as you're in accord. But then sometimes you find yourself in a position where you're not in accord mm -hmm. and you have ideas and somebody else has ideas and, and you wind up in a power struggle of, of one sort or another. They don't like to call it that, but, uh, you know, that's effectively what it is. And, uh, you know, how do you, you're getting notes from people. Do you want to take the notes? Do you want to rewrite it? You know, it's a very different world than, than books. Mm -hmm. What kind of people were you getting notes from? Other well, I mean, that's, or business it, that's expanded over the years. Um, you know, obviously you get, you know, a director comes in and he has his ideas. Now, again, this is all very, very, very complex and, and different. Um, television and film are often lost together, but they're really uh, different. They have evolved differently over the years. Uh, film is, is run by directors. Directors hire and fire writers. You see a motion picture. It's got like six writers listed there. The director is the guy who calls the shots. Uh, television is run by writers. Uh, the writers hire and fire the directors, and the writers are the showrunners, and the writers do that. But, of course, it's a group of writers. And in both television film, above the, above the directors, above the writers, who, whoever is supposedly running it, there is the studio or the network. Um, the, the people who write the checks and they have the ultimate authority to, uh, you know, do what they want to do or not do what they want to do. And, uh, and there are more, I mean, <laughs> I remember back in the days of Twilight Zone, we, we had two guys at CBS who were, you know, CBS current, um, who would read all the scripts and give us notes, two guys, um, and we were aggravated by that sometimes. We, you know, we didn't like some of the notes we were getting. There were fights and disagreements and things like that. Um, but now, I mean, there's not two guys. There's like 12 guys. And, and there's layers and layers and layers. You've, you've been working with people and you think you got everything done. And then someone above them who hasn't seen the scripts before weighs in. And to that person, what you've been working on for a year is a first draft, and mm -hmm. now they're going to give you their their thoughts on it. So it's, you know, it can be difficult. And I have to say that um, HBO is is the, the best for that. Not that they don't have their own hierarchies and all that stuff, but HBO has been always been very... Um, sensitive to the to the creatives as they they call us and to give it giving people a freedom and to breaking the the mold in some way taking risks letting the uh the writers uh or the creators uh do what they want to do um i think much more so than any other network or streamer or cable channel out there and and that was their reputation right from the beginning 
there's been an interesting book that came out a few months ago about Tinderbox, the whole uh, the whole history of HBO, and it's it's uh, made from like 150 interviews going all the way back to when HBO was founded. It's, it's, it's a fascinating read of the inside business of uh, of HBO in particular and of television in those eras. If you're interested in inside baseball, I mean, it's, it doesn't really talk about the show so much about what was going on behind the scenes and um, how some of these things came to be and what worked and what didn't work and a little bit of why. It's a it's, um, fascinating read. Sheds light on kind of the process behind everything. Yeah. Can you talk about your role in House of the Dragon and kind of what you're what you've done as you've essentially helped translate Fire and Blood into House of the Dragon and maybe how that might be similar or different from translating a song of ice and fire into Game of Thrones? Oh well, I could talk for an hour about all of this stuff. Um you know, around about 2016, it was uh, clear that um, Game of Thrones was was going to end, um, and you know there was a bit of discussion at the time and whether it, it, it should end or not. David and Dan um, wanted to wrap it up in seven seasons, and I was arguing for ten or eleven or twelve or thirteen seasons. Um, but um, it was clear that uh, they were. They were going after seven. It turned out to be eight, but the eight, eighth season is really the second half of the seventh season. Right. Um, so at that point, HBO said, well, okay, when we're going to lose the show, is there something else? And and I, I think it was the August of 2016, I uh, had a meeting with them, and I proposed a couple of uh, potential um, successor shows, as I prefer to call them, rather than spinoffs. One of them was Duncan Egg. Uh, and the other one, uh, which I'd written, I'd already written some material on that. And the other one was uh, the Dance of the Dragons, which seemed to have the drama that you needed to have a successful television show: the Targaryen civil war, many many dragons, uh, big scale battles, a lot of uh, intrigue and betrayal. And they they uh, responded to the idea right away. And so we, very soon after that, we we. Uh, put a number of shows in development, but Dance of Dragons was was one of them. Um, but it development is never an easy process. We we uh um but I was involved in it from the first, you know, working with the writers. We, there were a couple other writers who were involved and then finally um when for one reason or another that didn't work out. I, I knew Ryan Condell. Um, you know, we'd been friends. I'd uh he'd first met met me at a convention and I knew Number one, Ryan is a is a very strong writer. I, I like his work. He's done some good things. Number two, he knew my world. Uh, he knew it very well. He had read all the books, um, and that was a big plus. Because, and number three, he knew fantasy in general. I mean, not just my world, but he he did. Uh, you probably saw Colony, the the science fiction show he did before Game of Thrones. He did a. Um, I first met. Well, not first met. I, I I don't actually remember the first time I met him, but he does. It was at a convention where I signed a book for him. But a couple of years after that, outside of Santa Fe, he was filming a, a, a science fiction Western uh, based on a comic book called Sixth Gun. I don't know if you've ever read that comic. It's it's sort of a interesting, you know, in fantasy, there's always the enchanted sword, right? Well, Sixth Gun was a Western with an enchanted six, 
Bring it on. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was a pretty successful comic book, so they were making a, a, a pilot at it. And Ryan was the writer, showrunner on that. And he invited me out to the set. As Santa Fe is uh, surrounded by movie towns. We have four old Western towns. So we're Whoa. we're in good shape if Westerns yeah. ever come back big. We, right. have, we have four movie towns that you can go. And he was shooting on one of them. So I came down with my assistant and, and you know, hung around for most of the night, watched him shoot it. We had a couple meals and all that. So I knew Ryan would be a, a, a great guy to do uh, House of the Dragon, so, or Dance of the Dragons, as it was at that time. Um, so I brought him into HBO, and they liked him, and I liked him, and um, and suddenly we <clears throat> we were working together, and we we had a lot of meetings. We discussed the story, you know, his his outline, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, and and beat out what the story could be. HBO approved it, and then Ryan went and wrote the teleplay, um, which you know I was. I mean, as part of me that would write love to be actually writing and running all of these sure, uh, yeah. shows as part of me, but I, I can't. I've got, you may not know this is a book that I'm writing that wins some summer. It's a little late. I never heard of it before. <laughs> but I gotta, I gotta keep working on it and, uh, and, and finishing it. And uh, I, I can't, running a show is, you know, it takes me about a month based on my four Game of Thrones shows. Uh, scripts that I did the first four seasons. It takes me about a month to write a teleplay these days. That's maybe partly because I'm old. I don't know. It did. I could write it quicker in the days when I was on Twilight Zone and Beauty and the Beast. You know, um, in those days, I was doing five teleplays a year, but uh, I was also working as a producer and co-producer mm -hmm. and uh, all of those things. But I think I've slowed down a little now, but for whatever reason, it takes a big chunk and also it's not just the time that you, the month that you're writing a script, but then you're away from the book for a month. And when you get mm -hmm. back in, it's hard to, you know, get back in the groove again. It takes, takes me a little while. Um, so, and if you take a job as a showrunner or even the jobs that I had at the end on Beauty and the Beast or uh, when I was doing development, um, those are life-eating jobs. I mean, it's it's 24-7 to be a showrunner. You're not just writing scripts and supervising the writer's room. You're, you're in charge of the whole, the whole thing, you know. You're the one they call at 2 in the morning when something has gone wrong in, in Morocco. And, um, you know, you you got casting. you got post-production. you got the score. you get you got to hire everybody and make sure they're all working together. It's, it's a big, big job, and there's no way I could do that and hope to do any of the novels. But uh, so my part in all of these things is, uh, you know, generating some ideas, helping setting up, keep it consistent with the world and finding good partners to, to uh, work with. And I think I found a, a great partner in, in Ryan Condell and also Miguel Sapochnik, uh, who's one of our uh, one of our big Emmy winning directors from uh, from Game of Thrones. So but it's always a juggling act, especially now because we're doing so many spinoffs. I mean, I, I think House of Dragon is, is you know, running like a motherfucker, if I can say that on uh, on a podcast. Um, <laughs> say it. But some of the other spinoff shows are still in, in very early stages. Uh, scripts are being written. We're having, you know, writer's rooms. We're discussing things. Scripts are being rewritten. Um, they're not nearly as far along yet. So um, I'm juggling that. I'm juggling other projects. And, and in between juggling, I'm 
back at Winds of Winter. Uh, and I have people like Sid here who, uh, and my other minions who uh, have whips and uh, beat me with them occasionally when I'm uh, too long away. <laughs> uh -huh. And who actually has a... Uh, you're you're you guys are record for this here. This will be recorded, so we'll be record. If I if I'm found mysteriously dead, it, it it's her. It's I her. That. She has been threatening no me recently to, that. to kill me if I take on another project. She's ready to take your place. <laughs> and I'm saying, but it's a great project. <laughs> Look at these great people I would be working with. It would be so no, you'll be dead. I will kill you. <laughs> you need to clone yourself so you can be put in so many places at once. You can do all the things you want to do. Let me get a piece of your hair before we leave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you were asking earlier about, uh, you know, this as a, as a career. Um, and I was stating all the challenges and the difficulties with it. Um, and it's also very high stress, which is, um, you know, something that is also a factor. Yeah, there's no, no doubt that there's, there's uh, you know, millions of dollars involved here, especially in the television. You know, I mean, think, think of what it's like to be a showrunner. You're in charge of something that's $15 million an episode. You're in charge of $15 million of the, of, of HBO's money um, every episode. It, yeah. It's a lot of stress. Um, and it's a, I don't have that particular stress, but I have my own stresses, one of which is all the things that I'm juggling. But, Here's what I want to say. It, it's also fun. It's it, it's exciting. It's not the same thing twice. It's it, it's just when when something turns out well, and you're proud of your work, and you go through hell to make it. You know, there's a million times you think this isn't going to work. This is crap. It's oh my god, they're going to kill me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and and then. And it works, and it's such a high, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's a profession that has a joy in it. And, and I, I think uh, particularly when I'm talking to, uh, like, young people, like uh, kids in, in high school or even college, who would probably not want me to call them kids, but, uh, you know, one thing I say is find, find a path in life that brings you joy. Because I, I know too many people who, like, hate their jobs. They, they do their jobs to make money. They like having money. Who doesn't like having money, you know? Money is good, you know? You get a nice house, a nice car. You don't have to worry if you get sick, you know? It, all that stuff is good. And it particularly, and I came from, I did not come from money. I came from a poor background. So um, the financial security thing is important. But you can't, if you're just working for money, I you know, what was the Thoreau said? The mass of men leave lives of quiet desperation, go into the office every day, go into, you know. I mean, my father was a longshoreman. Um, it was a union job, pretty well paid when he when he worked. I mean, there, there were years where he was unemployed. But I never once saw him come back smiling and say, ah, what a great day I had on the docks. We, we really unloaded the hell out of this ship. No, it was, uh, there was no joy in, in what he did. Um, and it, it, there is joy in what, what I do. Um, I, when I write a book or I read a story or uh, do a television show or something like that, and it comes together well, um, there's nothing like it. Of course, it sometimes it doesn't come together well, and there's nothing like that either. That's uh, you know that makes you 
not feel so good. But um, again, it comes with the comes with the territory here. You you do the best you can, and uh, hopefully, people will like it. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you've got yourself in a pretty good situation with uh, these Game of Thrones successor shows. You're able to put your stamp of approval on the important things, but you're not taking the responsibility of show running every episode. Right. And, and that is great. If, if, you know, when I, when I find a a good partner, another more Brian Condell's, but everyone has a different thing. Um, but so far so good, knock wood. Um, somebody show, I mean, there's a number of them. I can't tell you how many, um, because there are things I'm, instructed not to talk about a reveal but uh, there are a number of the shows both live action and animated and uh some of them are coming better than others but uh i'm i'm excited about the potential of uh, all of them why the targaryens why do you think that fire and blood became the front runner i mean got to this point and what do you think it is about the targaryens that either excites you or excites audiences, aside from lots of dragons, like you said. Well, I think it is lots of dragons. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big part of it. People, people love the dragons. Yeah. Um, you also love the dragons. We just noticed the ones on the side of the building walking in. Yeah, I like the dragons too. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, House of the Dragon had a uh, head start on, on the successor shows we're doing now because it was – one of the two ideas I pitched in, in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the one that HBO responded to. So there were other things that were developed um, during that first uh, go-round. But House of the Dragon, um, the level of conflict, the um, the characters, some of them are very colorful, interesting characters. Um and when when we finally found the right way to get into it and and uh, did the script, I think uh, Ryan Miguel has done a great job. So, um, why Targaryens? What was I thinking in 2016? Well, I'd already written the story, of right. course. I did. The story existed in one form or another. Um, you know, it actually goes back to... Uh, well, it goes back to the novels. When I'm writing the novels, of course, it's it's set in... The Game of Thrones begins in 298 AC. I didn't even know that when I started it, you know. I've, um, but at some point, as I'm writing the story of Ned Stark and his children and what was happening then and bringing in other characters like Robert and the Lannisters and all four of them, in simultaneously inventing the history, I'm saying, okay, Robert's a usurper, and who... who um, who did he take it from and and how long had that dynasty rule and what is the history and it's all going on and then i don't i don't even remember we're going back now to uh to 1991 when i first started game of thrones um at some point i drew a map uh at some point i i drew up a list of uh, okay uh, who were the previous kings i drew up a list of names so that i could have somebody refer to if somebody referred to a, a king who had been gone 100 years and at first it was just a list of names and dates and but gradually all of those people assumed a personality in in my mind um and then at some point my publisher, Bantam Spectra, <clears throat> wanted to do a, a concordance. They wanted to do uh, a book about 
the background, the history of, of my world. And uh, it would be a big art book, The World of Ice and Fire. And, of course, I was busy with the novels, and I said, well, we, we can do this book, but um, I'm, I'm going to need help. Uh, okay, we'll have a lot of art. We'll have all this art. We'll spend a fortune on top fantasy artists, and we'll only have like 50,000 words of text, um, a lot of it which is in the novels, but it's scattered here and there. Here's someone mentions Darren, the young dragon, mm -hmm. and here's someone mentions Nymeria. You know, how do, how do they all fit together? So. Elio Garcia and Linda Antonsen, who had run the Westeros website, they were a couple of the first uh, real super fans. And I noticed a lot of the other concordances that had been out there for things like The Wheel of Time and, and um, you know, various other big fantasy series had been done uh, by fans or in conjunction with fans. So I said, let me, let me bring in Elio and Linda, and they'll go through all the books. They'll pull out everything. They'll organize it. It'll be, all be coherent, and then I'll just come in, and I'll polish it and, uh, you know, fill in any little gaps. And then I said the, the fatal words, oh, <laughs> and, you know, I'll write a few sidebars <laughs> of things that haven't been mentioned in the books but exist in my head uh, of, you know, little stories about a king. I, I haven't mentioned, you know, I mean – uh, because that exists in the real world, right? We all know that Millard Fillmore was president, but we don't speak of him very often. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You come up in conversation. So, um, you know, why would Jon Snow or something suddenly start talking about, um, you know, Ares II? Uh, well, <laughs> Going a long dialogue yeah. about, yeah. <laughs> but I'll write these sidebars and, and we'll do that. And that, that seemed uh, like a appropriate thing to do. But of course, what happened is, we were supposed to have 50,000 words of prose. By the time Elio and Linda finished their part, we already had 70,000 words of prose. And then I wrote 200,000 words of sidebars. <laughs> <laughs> which Sidebar. my editor's head exploded. <laughs> and she said, oh, okay, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do all this. We'll, we will have to rip out all the art uh -huh. <laughs> that we bought at such great expense here. <laughs> uh, no, okay. I said, I'll take out all the sidebars. So we took out all the sidebars, and uh, but I, I don't. I said, well, well, I'll make a separate book out of him, which I called for years the the Grim Marillion, G R M Marillion, because mm, nice. like the Cimmerillion. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's where the Dance of the Dragons first got its uh, got its um, start in in that. Um, and then, um, again, many things are happening simultaneously here. I was also editing anthologies with Gardner Dozois, who was uh, one of my oldest and dearest friends. Uh, Gardner was the first person I met at the first science fiction convention I ever went to. He was behind the registration desk. And he was also an assistant editor for Galaxy Magazine, who had bought my first story. I had already sold two stories by the time I, I walked into that convention. Uh, so Gardner and I hit it off, and he went on to become one of the great editors in the field, maybe the greatest. He was editor of uh, uh, Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine oh, cool. for years. He edited uh, the best SF of the year for, for decades. He won 16 Hugo Awards for best editor. Um, and he was always nagging me for stories for these original anthologies that he was doing. And finally I said to him, I can't, I'm too busy writing these books. I can't, write you stories, but I am an editor. I've, I've edited wild cards. I've done that. Why don't we edit some books together? And that would be fun. I have some ideas for books, for anthologies that I want to do, and you'd be the perfect guy to, to uh, uh, do it. 
with me. And he was enthused for that. So we did we did a number of anthologies that I'm um, very, very uh, proud of. Um, that one of the ideas of some of the bigger anthologies, and they were big, they were both big in size, and they paid very well, so we could attract some top writers, but was to do a cross-genre anthology. I mean, I, you know, growing up in Bayonne, New Jersey, we had no bookstore in the entire town. I I bought my books at a, we call them candy stores. I suppose today they'd be a bodegas or something. They, a little store that sold comic books and deli sandwiches and, and you know, cans of peas and, and whatever. Just a corner kind of store that had been there for a long time. And right next to the comic books, which I, you know, bought my marvels from, was the spinner rack that had paperback books in it. And when I started reading science fiction, I, I bought everything from the spinner rack. Now, the thing about the spinner racks is they're not they're not sorted by genre. So I'd be spinning the rack. I'd be looking for a Robert A. Heinlein, but mm-hmm. he'd be a Mickey Spillane book. He'd be a book by Shakespeare of uh, Shakespeare's plays. He'd, he'd be, you know, romance novels and mystery novels and historical fiction by Thomas B. Costain. And, yeah, mostly I read science fiction fantasy. But sometimes I I would see a cover or I would read a blurb and it would interest me and I would read that book too, and I thought that was a great thing. But we've we've lost um, the spinner racks in, in a lot of the country, and we have bookstores where everything is sorted by genre, um, and the science fiction fans never read anything. They just go to the science fiction section. The mystery fans just go to the mystery section. The romance fans just go to romance section. They don't notice that there are really great writers in all of these genres and subgenres and, and so forth. And um, so Gardner and I set out to do, uh, you know, basically spinner rack anthologies like uh, Warriors and Rogues, where we didn't, we, yes, we, we got some great science fiction writers, some great fantasy writers, but we also went out to mystery writers and romance writers and hi- writers of historical fiction. And uh, we, we put together these books on a broad enough theme like Warriors, Warriors fits all of them, and we got some great stories. But Gardner, um, which was I loved him, what could be a stubborn pain in the ass too. I thought by editing books with me, he'd he'd lay off wanting stories from me. But no, no, he wanted <laughs> stories from me too. Give him an inch. <laughs> yeah. What are you gonna do? You know. So we were doing one of these spinner rack anthologies called Dangerous Women. I said, well, we got to have a story from you for this. It's your idea. So, you know, I said, I don't have time to write you a story. I'm writing these books. <laughs> and then I thought, well, wait a minute. I have to, I have to sidebars. And there's some dangerous women in the sidebars. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I took out the chunk and edited it. And uh, it became The Princess and a Queen, which Gardner further edited because he was an editor. He, he went in and, and, trimmed that story. He bridged that story. So the printed version of the princess and a queen was not exactly what would have been in the, the Grimmerillion. And then of course, when we did rogues, did the same thing with rogues. So I couldn't, I couldn't write him brand new stories from scratch. I, I, I could write him, uh, you know, these, these sorts of stories. Um, and then I had those stories and I was further along toward, uh, the, the Grimmerillion. And, and that was the seed from, uh, Fire and Blood, which is ultimately what we titled the first part of the, what I've been jokingly called the Grimmerillion, came. And mm. 
that was became the basis for uh, um, House of the Dragon. I will say a lot of the the people uh, are getting it wrong. On uh, there's a lot of websites that are assuming that Fire and Blood, the version of these stories that's in Fire and Blood, was uh, an expansion of what was previously written. Um, and parts of Fire and Blood, yes, were written specifically for Fire and Blood, like all the Jaharis chapters, which you guys have been reading recently. Recently, yeah. um, but. In the case of a lot of the Dance of Dragons material, uh, it's it's just the reverse. The the original sidebar was the longer version, and then Elio and Linda abridged it for the version that's in World of Fire, and Gardner abridged it differently, not working from Elio and Linda's, but working from the original, abridged it differently to produce the Princess and the Queen and the Rogue Prince. So the Fire and Blood versions are the older and not an expansion of Princess and the Queen, but Princess and the Queen is a trim of the sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sidebar that's yes. now spun into <laughs> many projects. So I don't know. That's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but uh, I do. <laughs> I do get carried away here. <laughs> um, so, so much of this dance of the dragon story is written from multiple, well, all of fire and blood is written from many perspectives. You have all of these different um, sources that come together to tell the broader story. And especially when we get to the dance, there's three in particular who um, we draw from to get the narrative. And I know that house of the dragon is not going to be split into three different bouncing perspectives. We we did discuss it. Uh, (laughs) We did discuss it, but uh, you know, I wasn't able Unable to persuade anyone that uh, that would be a good good way to go. I think that was smart. Um, <laughs> can you talk about how you um, were able to kind of balance? Because it's very interesting reading Fire and Blood, and like it's like it reads like a historical perspective where you're kind of learning from the different angles of the different people that were there, and that's a really interesting experience. So, can you talk about how that's translated into House of the Dragon and how we may s- still be able to? get some of those great personalities like Mushroom's perspective when we are just seeing one narrative. Mushroom, the great personality. I mean, <laughs> he's an interesting guy. <laughs> you know, sometimes I, I have a, um, a blog post that's coming up shortly about this, but where I talk about myself as a gardener, which I've often said in my whole speech about the architects and the gardeners, I won't repeat that for you. It's available. It'll be available again, a clip in my uh, blog post, and I've said it in 17 previous interviews. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometimes I, I don't know where these things come from. They just come. Uh, is it a muse like the Greeks believes? Is it a right brain, left brain kind of thing? Is it a something from my subconscious, as Freud would do? Who the hell knows? But sometimes I can look back and I can see, uh, you know, seeds to certain specific things. And when I look at Fire and Blood... Um, a long time ago in the 70s, when I was uh, first breaking in and writing a lot of short stories, I did write a few fantasies and horror stories, but like um, 90% of my output was science fiction. And uh, 90% of the science fiction was set against a common future history, as it's called uh, called the Thousand Worlds or the Man Realm. 
um, of alien planets and starships and a certain history. You know, this is a, the future history is a concept that uh, goes way back in science fiction. I think Robert A. Heinlein was the first one to actually use the term future history. It's, it's not actually a series per se, because it's looser than that. It's, it's like a framework. Here's the history of the future or of my future. In Heinlein's case, his future, and then Asimov did it, and a lot of people were doing future histories. Uh, Larry Niven's Known Space, um, Jack Vance's um, Worlds, um, you know, I, a lot of them did that. So mine was The Thousand Worlds, and I was writing stories in The Thousand Worlds, many of them. I think I did, I don't know, 20, 30. I don't have a hard count, but they were hundreds of years apart. They have different protagonists, but they would refer to the same planets and the same events. Avalon came up a lot. Prometheus, uh, you know, some of the imaginary worlds I invented. And at some point back in the 70s, I thought, you know, after after I write a few novels and do more, it would be fun to do a history of the Thousand Worlds, to, to start with uh, modern-day Earth in, you know, 1975 and say, uh, cover the next, uh, you know, thousand years of human history and how we got to the Thousand Worlds. And I always had that in the back of my head. I, I said, oh, that would be cool to do it. To actually write the future history instead of just having it as a background. Of course, I never did anything like that, but that sort of planted the the seed. Um, many decades later, uh, as you know, I read a lot of history, popular history. One of the things I read um, that I really liked was uh, a series of uh, Thomas B. Custain was a writer of historical fiction. who was very popular in the 50s, had a number of bestsellers. And he, he wrote uh, a four-volume history of the Plantagenets, um, which I loved. It, 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 it's a popular history. It's not academic history. It's all the stories. And it, it goes through all the Plantagenets from the very first one through generation after generation of uh, people being born and dying and different kings and princes and wars and, and all of that. And one just leading right into another, um, which is something I think we— we lose in some of these some of these history books, and I, I do read still read a lot of popular history. I mean, you you read a book about William the Conqueror, say, and it's about William the Conqueror. It's a okay. Here's here's where he was born, and there's a page to his parents, and here's here's he grew up, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then he won the Battle of Hastings, and he was king, and he did that, and then he had children, and he died, and then it's over. And, and, you know, the book about William the Conqueror is over. It's very focused. But history's not like that. History's just one damn thing after another. The minute William died, uh, you know, his sons were competing. Well, who gets to be kings next? And there's war. And then when they die, there's, an, there's more. There's always more. There's always more. And I like that that ongoing thing of history. And Costain captured that in the uh, his history of Plantagenus, which, uh, you know, was another influence that was in uh, the back of my head. And then um, maybe the other seed that... Uh, was planted was um, the the uh, I talked about Armageddon rag not selling right um, and I was trying to sell my fifth novel um, it was a a novel it was another hybrid uh, blend of genres it was historical horror um, set in eighteen nineties New York in the world of yellow journalism at the time where there were 14 daily newspapers 
competing for all the great stories of the day. And the reporters of that day would do anything. And the publishers were very uh, colorful, too. And uh, that was what it was. And my working title was, which I loved the title, actually, Black and White and Red All Over. Because hmm. um, the the three main reporters for three competing newspapers were on the uh, on the track of a serial killer. And I wrote about 200 pages of it, but we nobody bought it, so uh, it was never completed. Its relevance to this, though, is I'm buying, you know, this is before the internet, right? And we're talking 1984 or so. So the way I researched is I'd buy every book I could get my hand on. I'd go to used bookstores and, and uh, you know, there's, again, there's no Amazon either. There, so you had to really hunt the damn books down. And I'm reading everything I could about uh, 1890s New York, yellow journalism, the, the great towering figures of that day, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things, um, location, was uh, the New York World. Joseph Pulitzer was the, was the publisher. That's one of the newspapers I was dealing with. Um, the World, Pulitzer built a headquarters for the world, a, a very tall building by the standards of the 1880s with a golden dome on top. It was the tallest building in the world at the time. Um, sadly, no longer exists, was knocked down to make way for an approach to the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. But um, it, it was on Newspaper Row where all the newspapers were on the same block. And, uh, you know, Charles Dana, who edited The uh, Sun, um, you know, those newspapers in these days each had these powerful publisher editors who, whose personality really suffused that. And Dana and the Sun had been around for ages, but Pulitzer built the world right next to him, and it was such a tall building, it overshadowed the Sun. So people say, oh, look, Joe Pulitzer can spit down on the Sun. He can spit on the Sun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm doing research for this, and, and I got all these books, and I'm trying to find out a very simple, basic fact. How many stories was this building? Mm. How tall was it? You know, it's the tallest building in the world. You think that would be pretty well known. But I'm saying... This book says it's 15 stories, and this book says it's 14 stories. And over here, this one says it's 20 stories. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> and it's gone. How do I know? <laughs> How do I know? I'm relying on these, these books that are themselves, many of them written long after the building was torn down. Mm -hmm. How do you know? And it really impressed on me um, in, in a weird way. If even a simple fact like that, that the, the number of stories of the tallest building in the world, not some obscure little right. building <laughs> on a side screen, you know? Right. Uh, it's a main characteristic. A very famous building. They The history doesn't even get it right. And then, of course, you expand for that and you look at all of history. And um, there are so many different versions. So... When it came time to, to start putting together um, Fire and Blood, um, all of these things sort of gelled in the back of my mind. And, you know, you're writing a scene and, um, okay, this, this could happen. I could do it this way. Uh, I don't know. That's a little over the top. That's, uh, I don't know. I could do it this way. That's not as much fun, but it's probably more realistic or I could do wait a minute I can do it all these ways I could show the same incident in three different versions and eh, let them figure out how tall the world building is <laughs> and present all of the versions there's the scandalous version the pious version the official version 
And of course, this gelled with stuff I'd, I'd already encountered um, writing Game of Thrones. I mean, um, I've often spoken in interviews of the inspirations for the uh, uh, the Red Wedding, mm-hmm. which were two incidents from Scottish history, the Glencoe Massacre, where the Campbells killed uh, all the McDonald's, or as many as they could get a hold of, and the um, the the Black Dinner, as it was called. Now, it, it, the Black Dinner, um, there was conflict between the King of Scotland and the Earl of Douglas, the so-called Black Douglas, who was a very powerful nobleman, and they'd been fighting here. So, to the the King of Scotland invites the Earl of Douglas to come have dinner with him. And he he goes to uh, I think it was Stirling Castle, might have been Edinburgh. I have to check one of the castles. And uh, the Earl of Douglas is a, is a young man. He's only like uh, eighteen years old, and he brings his brother with him, who's only like fifteen years old. And the two of them arrive at the castle, and they have a lovely dinner with the king. And then at the end of it, you know, this somebody starts to play drums in a funereal kind of gloomy thing and some servants come in with a covered tray and they put it down in front of the Douglases and they lift it and it's a black boar's head which was supposed to be the symbol of death and the Douglases look at that and they know that means that they're going to die right now even though the king had given them safe conduct and then they're dragged outside and executed um that's the black dinner powerful scary spooky thing But then you get further into it and you see some modern historians say, no, none of it ever happened. It was all just <laughs> added later by story. Yes, he got, he got the Douglases there and he killed them. Yeah. But there was no- There was no boar. There was no boar's head. There yeah. was nobody playing the drums in a funeral march and it's all gotta that. It's got to be drums, They just though. added to that. But uh, So even in real history, we have these stumps now. Exactly. There's, do you want to go with the, the really cool, fun, spooky version or do you want to go with the- the dull version. I, I I don't know. Um, we like the drama. The, yeah, we like the drama. I like the drama, especially too, when yes. it's about but, the past. But there is a impulse in me, you know, to say, well, probably the probably the dull version is right. <laughs> you know, probably mm-hmm. all the juicy details were added later by yeah. storytellers. But mm-hmm. still, unless we invent the time machine, we'll never know. Um all we have is accounts written later, some of them written hundreds of years later, and drawing on other accounts. So, you know, it's just something my grandfather told me. He was there at the time. We can't know. So I wanted to get that in when I did um, when I did Fire and Blood. I wanted to uh, present the readers with a choice. And so I, I framed it all as being written by uh, Archmaster Gildane, who is writing a history of the Targaryens, but he's he's writing it hundreds of years later. He wasn't there. He's he's basing it on various sources. And of course, he's covering hundreds of years, so even the sources keep changing. He may draw on Mushroom for a while, but then Mushroom leaves and he's not around anymore, so he's got to find other sources. So, uh, and I had a lot of fun doing that. And I think uh, some of the readers had a, had a lot of fun with that as well. Um, but... Um, it's different. It's not a novel. It's, uh, you know, I, I said that numerous times when it came out. I didn't want anyone, I didn't want any of my readers buying it thinking they were going to get a Dance with Dragons or or a conventional model. Yeah. Um, that what they're getting is, uh, um, I called it fake history for a time until one of my fans said they didn't like that time. And <laughs> then I started calling it imaginary history. Okay, okay. that's that's better. Um, 
we should mention here that uh, Fire and Blood is being reissued yes. on July 12th <laughs> in a brand new edition Skip with uh, tie-in art. Um, so uh, if you haven't read Fire and Blood, you can uh, run out and get it, and uh, it should be in your local bookstore or your favorite online bookseller. Or if you want an autographed copy, uh, Beastly Books, which we're right next door to my bookstore, Beastly Books, I'll be going in and scribbling my name illegibly in uh, a few hundred <laughs> copies as soon as they come in. So you can mail order a copy of Beastly Books and get a signature in it. But uh, yeah, that's that's Fire and Blood. So the the situation with the three different pr perspectives, do you know at this point how they plan? I know it happens later than what contextually is being adapted right now, probably, I'm just guessing, uh, for se season one of Hot D. How how is that going to work in the TV show? Well, they're not going to do three separate plans. Yeah, and and we're not going to do uh, Archmaster de Gildane either. Again, you know, when you're developing something, you consider all possibilities. You you uh, you know you discuss it. Um, we did discuss uh, at at one point. Um, I think Ryan and I discussed this, but as I said, there were other writers on this before Ryan. Um, I don't know if any of you, uh, if you guys have ever seen I, Claudius. Have you seen mm -hmm. I, Claudius? No. Oh, uh, you should see I, Claudius. It's one of the great television series of all time. Um, one of my favorites. What's it about? It's about Claudius, the Emperor oh. Claudius. <laughs> it's uh, based on the uh, two novels by Robert Graves, which were called I, Claudius and Claudius the God. Um, Claudius was, uh, uh, let's see, he was the fourth... Roman emperor, I think. Um, but he lived through the reigns of the first three, and he was uh, um, he was um, disabled in, in some manner. He had a limp, he twitched, he stuttered, and everybody thought he was an idiot <laughs> in his family. And at a certain point, he started even, according to Graves and some historians, exaggerating his idiocy um, because meanwhile, everybody else was competing for power and all his relatives were murdering each other mm -hmm. and poisoning each other <laughs> and stabbing each other. Um, so he managed to survive and become emperor. Um, and Graves wrote these two great novels about them, which I recommend. And in the 70s, the BBC uh, adapted them to uh, a 13-hour series called I, Claudius. Now, it, it's... Um, it was a BBC show, not an American network show. So the budgets are significantly less anyway. And it was the 70s. So these shows were made for $1.95 each. <laughs> there, there are no special effects. There are no, in fact, the entire shows are filmed in like three rooms. And, uh, you know, when, when Claudius goes to a gladiator show, you never see any gladiators. You just see him <laughs> sitting and his face reacting mm -hmm. to, and, uh, you know, the and, and things like that. Do. Um, occasionally some of the marble pillars will ripple as he walks by because they're actually painted canvas. <laughs> Can you forgive that? I, I Sadly, I found that there's some modern uh, viewers and fans who can't, but um, I certainly could. And it's brilliantly written and brilliantly acted. It's, it made Derek Jacobi a star. It, it includes... Uh, Includes Patrick Stewart with hair in a minor role uh, very on John Hurt and things like that, and it captures all of uh, you know all of the reign of Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and uh, um, of course Augustus's wife, the the Livia, who is uh, portrayed very you know 
she's like a smarter version of Cersei. Um, <laughs> but it's a great show. But the, the point is, it's it's framed because when you come into the show, you see the old Claudius. He's emperor now. He's in his dotage. He's he's. Uh, but he's writing the secret history of his family to pass down the real story of what happened. And, you know, he opens every episode writing it, and, and then you, you see the flashback, you see the episode. So all of the episodes are framed by old Claudius. The, actually, the first two, I think, he's not even born yet, but he's old Claudius is writing about that. And we did consider that approach here. I mean, we could have uh, framed... Um, House of the Dragon with Archmaester Gildane, um, you know, 200 years in the future, this old dotard, um, you know, going through these uh, sources and all that. But but we decided against that. Um, and, uh, you know, it would have been another way to go. But there's uh, a lot of people don't like frame stories these days. Um, so maybe it was the right choice. But, um, you know, I guess I'm just saying uh, it, we couldn't, if we had done the frame, then we could have presented alternate viewpoints. We could have had, well, here's Mushroom's account, and and then shown that, and oh, here's, um, here's Septon Eustace's account. Oh, but and and shown the same actors doing different things, sort of a Rashomon approach, um, like the last duel, that recent movie that Ridley Scott yes. won. They did it like that too. Yes, but we we um. Obviously, we didn't do that. So, uh, what we, what Ryan and Miguel and their writers have done instead is, uh, um, I, I think, done a great job of going through here and picking, picking and choosing among uh, various versions of the same events. And of course, there's some departures from any version of events in the text because you have to you have to do that when you're doing a, a certain adaptation for television or film. Um, so, you know. Uh, you'll see it so, soon enough. We're we're coming up on it, and you can uh, you can make your choices. I do think uh, I've blogged about this already, but in 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 some ways, I I think they made some improvements. I wish I'd done that. I, I'm particularly thinking of the portrayal, Patty Constantine's portrayal of King Viserys the mm. first. Um, Viserys, when I when I wrote Fire and Blood, was uh, I guess not a character who particularly engaged me. Um, I, I saw him as a, you know, he's he's the guy between Jaehaerys and the Dance with the Dragons, and um, you know, I I kind of liked him. I mean, I, I but it's hard to follow Jaehaerys. <laughs> but what Patty Constantine has done has has uh, to my mind made him um, much more of a tragic figure, and less of like a a kind of amiable guy who doesn't really. Um, realize what's going on about him, however you would characterize the character in the book. Um, this is, you know, not the first time this has happened to me with adaptations. Sometimes you get you get an actor, a director, a screenwriter who who changes your your stuff in a way that you like, and mm -hmm. you kind of wish you could go back and do that version. Admittedly, it doesn't happen very often. More often, it's the <laughs> reverse. <Opposite>. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to hear what you guys uh, think of uh, you know of House of Dragon when it comes on, of uh, of Patty Constantine's portrayal of it. I'm looking forward to uh, meeting some of these actors at uh, San Diego Comic Con in in uh, 
just a few weeks now. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I, I have not had the chance, to, uh, like I did with Game of Thrones, to visit the set. I've been too busy uh, writing things here and uh, so forth. But you've seen you've seen the screeners, so you've seen. I've seen nine of the ten. So you've seen what? Obviously, like. rough cuts. Right. So of course. a lot of the special effects are missing, which is. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen a rough cut. Have you ever seen a rough I cut? I have. Yeah, I have. I saw one of Lion the Rose back in the day. Then <laughs> Joffrey dying without the special effects was ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Some of it is is uh, very amusing, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm. The special effects I have seen are, are great. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'm hoping the show will be great. Now, of course, the other thing about Fire and Blood, of course, is that there's another half of it. That That's I what I was going to gonna ask. Yeah. So I was going to ask about, uh, you the know. The Grimmarillion turned into two Grimmarillion somewhere <laughs> away this. Classic. Same way with me writing those damn sidebars. Right. <laughs> you keep doing this to yourself. Um, so we've got Fire and Blood 2 eventually happening. Um can is can you comment on and I assume like House of the Dragon, we've got multiple seasons planned for that. I assume, depending on things go well, is there Well, I mean, so far we just have the one. They haven't right. ordered a second okay. run yet. But yeah. um we're obviously hoping, yes. Right. But um until we actually get the uh the order, then then no. There's nothing. My assumption our assumption has been that season one of House of the Dragon is not gonna cover everything that's currently written in Fire and Blood. But I don't know if how correct that assumption is, or if we can Tell us, make any get any answers well, that, on that. That is correct. I mean, of course, Fire and Blood starts earlier, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it starts with Aegon's conquest, and and is even a little bit pre-Aegon. Um, while House of Dragons starts with uh, the Great Council of of One Hundred One. Um. So. Um, so right at the beginning, there's a lot of stuff, um, beforehand. And then the question is how much of stuff afterwards exactly. are we going to get in or are we going to get more seasons? And of course that depends on, um, you know, HBO and, and viewers and everything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously hoping House of Dragon will be, uh, a success, will be a huge hit. We'll get, we'll get good reviews, the fans will like it, or and not all the fans. I know not all the fans like everything, but <laughs> many of the fans I hope will like it. Uh, maybe we'll get some Emmy nominations, maybe even win some. All of that would be good, um, but it doesn't necessarily always happen, um, you know. And we there's a lot of other stuff going on. You 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 guys are fans. You're in the middle of this swirling fan online world, um, which honestly I. I, I kind of don't know what to make with, um, you know, that there's a lot of sound and fury, but does it signify anything? Or is it like Shakespeare said, sound and fury signifying nothing? I don't know. Um, how, how much impact do, do the, you know, these, these, uh, blogs and podcasts and posts and fan campaigns have now? I don't know. In the old days, uh, going back to Twilight Zone and um, you know Beauty and the Beast and the shows we're on, it was relatively simple. You you lived and died by your ratings, your Nielsen ratings. You 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 know we come in a Beauty and the Beast on Monday because we we always aired on on uh, Friday night, and we'd see the uh, the overnights, which in our case was Monday. Uh, oh, here's our Nielsen overnights, and then you'd get a week later, you'd get the Nationals, and you see where your numbers are and. 
you see, well, you finished in your time slot. We we only had three and a half networks then, but, you know, Fox was only on two days a week. But uh, are we first, second, or third in our time slot? And if, if the ratings were falling and you were losing your time slot, you kind of knew you were in trouble. But um, it's all changed. I mean, cable has changed everything. Nielsen ratings still have some effect. And... Um, but the market is so fragmented; it's it's very difficult to tell. I, I mean, I'm I'm on shows now that are you see a show got two million viewers and and uh, people doing somersaults. Twilight Zone was canceled when we had fourteen million people yeah. watching yeah. it every week. Right, right. <laughs> so, oh God, only fourteen million. Get them out of here. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, but I I. If quality is any indication, I, I think House of the Dragon should do very well. It's a it's a dark story, mind you, and you've read the books. You know, it's a dark story. Yeah. And the characters are gray. Um, they're complex. They're very human. They're driven by things that I think real human beings are, are driven by, uh, which is ambition and power and revenge for slights that they feel that were done to them and lust and uh, you know all of these things that i think we all have in something and that's the kind of characters i like to write about to explore them they have a good side they have a bad side you know we don't have any orcs um (laughs) who are just pure creatures of evil um going around doing evil but despite that we don't have any orcs but we don't have any glowing, heroic um, characters either. So it's it's almost the kind of Shakespearean in, in some ways. So, um, and I love Shakespeare, so uh, that's good. I have a lot of diverse um, influences on me as a writer. Shakespeare is in there with Stan Lee. That's not a, <laughs> not a group You're a well-rounded you man, uh, yeah. They'll be equal <laughs> in history. together, yeah. <laughs> So uh, yeah, if if, uh, if House of Dragon does well, um, then you'll see more seasons, and I think you'll see more successor shows. I mean, the more the more we do, the more uh, HBO will want to do. If for some reason House of Dragon flops or um, is a failure, then then who the hell knows? I after the life I've had that I've described with you, my career is crashing and burn. I don't take anything for granted now. Right. I just cross my fingers and hope my my luck continues, and I hope uh, you know the fans will continue to uh, to enjoy it. The viewers, the viewers, the readers. Um, if listeners want a Jon Snow show, we better be. All hyped in on House of the Dragon, so we can get, <laughs> get more of the successor shows. In. That, that, would, that would probably help. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I can't really talk about the successor shows we're working on. Um, we're not ready for that. We we don't know how many of them are actually going to make it to air. Um, so I can't. But I will say my my hope is that a number of them will make it to air. Maybe not <clears throat> next year or the year after, but uh, eventually. And um, I also like the idea that they are different from one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to write the same story over and over again. And uh, one of the things that I uh, I like in my fantasy, and um, I think there are people out there who like that too, is, is the world building. And I've obviously spent decades building the world of 
<coughs> Westeros and Essos and regions further beyond. And it's a process that continues to this day. Um, but the thing about world building is um, if you do it right, in the end, you have a world. And a world has many stories in it. You know, the, A Song of Ice and Fire, the, the War of the Five Kings, the story of Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen and, and uh, Tyrion Lannister, that's, that's just one story. There are other stories that took place hundreds of years before that. There are uh, um, stories that took place on other continents and other lands that um, we have yet to explore. I mean, it has been revealed, so when one of the animated shows we're developing, I can say this much because it's already been in the press, is set in Yiti, um, which is, you know, kind of my version of, uh, you know, if if Westeros is medieval England and France, then Yiti is uh, medieval China. And uh, that's a whole different world that only has been mentioned here and there. And we got a great young writer on that, and... Um, Boy, that could be an amazing, amazing show, so and it's cool. a totally different. But, you know, a Stark is not going to show up in the middle of that show. <laughs> and, and at least I don't plan for one <laughs> right. to show up. Unless, unless a farmer might show up. <laughs> yeah, unless, unless a farmer farm might show up is all I'm saying. <laughs> so this is, yeah, this is, uh, um, this is my hope for these successor shows, that there will be all sorts of different successor shows taking place in the same world. Um, and worlds have many aspects. I mean, people, you know, you look at our real world, um, World War II, right? Huge event that galvanized the entire world. But you can do a World War II story that's about the Holocaust, and it's a grim, horrific drama, you know? You can do a World War story... World War II story about Saving Private Ryan, which is on the beaches and the, and the GIs and all that. You can do a World War II story, which is all about Churchill, as they have done. And, and you're, you're not on the beaches. You're not in the death camps. You're with Churchill. You're with Roosevelt. And, you know, he's trying to solve the problems of the day. If you actually look back at uh, 1939 and 1940 and the movies that they were making while World War II was raging, they were making comedies and love stories and mm -hmm. People were still living their lives, even though this stuff was going on. And that's legitimate, too, to my mind. And and um, that would be, to my mind, the ultimate kind of thing, that uh, the world the world becomes so great that it can entertain many different stories, that it could have, uh, you know, love stories or, or even comedies or, or um, uh, other things happening in other corners of the world, even while... The Dance with the Dragons or the War of Five Kings is going on. It doesn't, everything has to, doesn't have to be about the Iron Throne, the Iron Throne, the Iron Throne, and uh, so forth. So I, I hope we'll we'll get there. I, I admire what Marvel is is doing with with some of that. I mean, with their their Marvel um, television shows as well as the cinematic universe. I mean, I remember when I when my wife Paris and I tuned in for WandaVision and we said, what the hell is this? Yeah. <laughs> this is like the Dick Van Dyke show. Right. What, what, the hell is, what the hell is the Scarlet Witch and New Vision doing in the Dick Van Dyke show? Mm -hmm. I watched that show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. It's, um, like I said, it's all, uh, it's never the same twice in this right. business. You, exactly. don't know, you don't know what's going to come out and you're, you're dealing with um, a lot of variable factors. I do hope that 
and I, I said this in the independent interview, and of course, uh, that was good, but then uh, somehow the things I said got twisted out of context and made into headlines all about the competition between us and Lord of the Rings. Um, I want this, I don't know anything about the Lord of the Rings show beyond what anybody else knows. Right. I have no particular insight in that. I've never met the showrunners or anything like that. I have read the appendices a long time ago. I'm interested to see what they're what they've come up with, knowing how relatively thin is the material that they're basing on, because they don't have, you know, like the Cimmerillion, which would be the Medium. solid thing to adopt. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's all this publicity about House of Dragon versus Lord of the Rings is, is or Rings of Power is, is such a narrow point of view. I mean, I grew up. I was a kid in the 50s. And in the 50s, Westerns ruled television. There were three networks, and they all had Westerns on every night. Every night. You could take your choice of Westerns. And nobody ever said, well, is it Gunsmoke or Bonanza? We can't have both. <laughs> it's Gunsmoke versus Bonanza. Who will win? We, we had Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And we had Have Gun Will Travel. And we had all the Warner Brothers Westerns with their theme songs, Maverick, Sugarfoot, Bronco, um, Colt 45, you know, every night, Western after Western after Western. The Old West was big enough for 100 shows. Uh -huh. <laughs> Why are we assuming that fantasy is only big enough for one? <laughs> I think it's crazy. Fantasy is huge. It's much bigger than the Old West. If we could have 100 Westerns, we can have 100 fantasy shows. And, and there are some great ones to adapt, not only Tolkien and me, and of course now we have The Witcher and Wheel of Time, both of which are based on book series, which I like mm -hmm. to see. Yes. Um, in a video game. You know, Ryan Condell, before he came to our show, wrote a Conan pilot. Oh, wow. And that was not made and you know i want that pilot yes yeah. it's a matter of time let's <laughs> bring conan <laughs> back conan. Yeah. and and do a conan show let's yeah. do robert e howard let's do a solomon kane show he it was actually my favorite robert e howard character let's get some jack vance shows let's do rogers and lasney's nine princes and amber um if if fantasy continues to do big we can get all of these shows and uh and, you know, not that I just want to watch fantasy. Right. I would like to watch fantasy shows and situation comedies and uh, straight dramas, you know, cop shows. Eh, I'm a little burned out on cop shows, but admittedly, but um, uh, so is, I think, a lot of people. Um, what what else? There's, you know, a million other, million other kinds of shows we can do here and, and uh, historical shows. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of... Pretty good historical shows coming. I love The Last Kingdom, which is based on Bernard Cornwell's books. He's another yeah. writer that I really, uh, really, really admire. Um, it's only a win for the genre as we continue to yes. make great television. And again, the, like you said, there's so many amazing books out there that we can adapt to the screen. That Which is not to say that you can't have your favorites. I of mean, I'm not, I'm not telling people that they have to love everything. You know, I, I liked... I. Watch those old westerns, and I had my favorites. I loved Maverick. I loved um, Have Gun Will Travel, which I still holds up very well. Gunsmoke eh, ran for twenty years. It was okay, <laughs> but I didn't love it uh, the same way. Um, but it was, you know, it was a show that obviously millions of people did watch, and not two million people either. But you know, whatever <laughs> it was a good rating in those days, like thirty million people watching it. 
who knows? But um, yeah, you always have your favorites. You know, everybody has their favorite James Bond or or their favorite Doctor Who or their favorite uh, cop show or their favorite sitcom. Um, but let's let's get them all on the air here and uh, give them give it a chance as well as everybody. Do you think that making more successor shows? Or do you not think? So I love the idea of us having an at the crossroads comedy. I love that idea, or the million other ideas that might be possible to make. Do you think that the more that we explore the universe, the more it might take away from the legacy of Ice and Fire, the book series itself? A lot of people believe that. I think that they they love your book so much that they're afraid that anyone else having the chance to play around in that world might create an opportunity for it not to be as good as what you've originally written. I don't know. That's, um, that's a difficult one to answer. Um, it's complicated by the fact that as you're aware, I'm not finished the books yet. I think ultimately <clears throat> the legacy of the books, um, depends on the books. I have to, I have to finish the books. Not only do I have to finish the books, but I have to finish the books strong um, in a way that uh, people like. I mean, that's ultimately what's going to determine the, the legacy. If I can finish the books strong, then then I think they'll stand for themselves. I mean, my friend Roger Zelazny, who is uh, one of the great science fiction writers of all time, uh, um, one of the first guys to move to Santa Fe, the only guy I met when I was here. You know, Roger um, used to quote James M. Cain, which was, uh, um, you know, a very successful writer of the uh, the 30s and 40s who did uh, The Postman only rings, Postman never rings twice, and, uh, you know, various other things that were adapted for Hollywood. And uh, a reporter famously asked him one day, um, Mr. Kane, what do you think about what Hollywood has done to your books? And he replied, uh, Hollywood hasn't done anything to my books. See, they're, they're right over there. They're on a shelf. <laughs> yeah. They're exactly the way I wrote them, word for word. Um, and Roger used to quote that. Um, you know, he had a similar experience. He, he wrote he wrote many good books, but one, one of the books he, he wrote uh, was a book called Damnation Alley, which were about a hell's angel. It's kind of a post-Holocaust world. And... Uh, Boston is is um, you know just something has screwed up the atmosphere. Nobody can fly anymore, uh, and civilization. You know, it's a, like a kind of Mad Maxy world here, and b the people in Boston, which is one of the enclaves, are dying of some plague, and they have a vaccine that'll cure it, but it's in California. How do you get it to them? So, in in Roger's book, uh, a guy named Hell Tanner, who's a hellless angel, uh, <laughs> delivers it. He has to go cross country on his motorcycle and and get there. It's a fun read. It's a fun book, but it's not one of Roger's major works. And in fact, when it was published, he he got an absolutely withering review for it. It was like, oh, Roger Lesney, what are you doing? You've written all these great works, and now that you've written this terrible thing about biker gangs and mutants and and uh, you know all of this stuff, uh, you know, violence and all that. Very negative review, but somebody in Hollywood saw it and said, hmm, biker gangs, mutants, yes, that's for us. <laughs> <laughs> and they bought it, and they made a movie of Damnation Alley, um, but they changed everything. Oh. They didn't like the idea of having a, um, a, a Hell's Angel, so um, uh, 
they they cast Jan Michael Vincent, one of the most clean cut actors you'd ever want to meet, and <laughs> they gave him a giant minivan or something like that, and and uh, it's sort of campy. Um, not not a good movie by any any standard of the imagination. So Roger was often faced with that. You know what what. Roger, what do you think of what they've done to Damnation Alley? And he would yeah. quote Kane and say, they haven't done a thing to it. There it is, right over there. <laughs> you can read it if you want to. Um, so I don't know. So there's there's that question. But um, um, I, I, I would like to finish the books and to finish the books strong. And then I would like to write more books. Yeah. I would like to, you know, write. I, I got to finish the more Duncan Hank stories. I have to finish... Um, the second part of uh, Fire and Blood, um, and I know some of my fans will be outraged to hear this, but I occasionally like to write other things. I would like to write maybe another Thousand Worlds story. I, I certainly want to write more Wild Cards. You know, when we I started Wild Cards, which was years before um, Game of Thrones. Um, I was a writer for it as well as an editor, and I regularly contributed uh, stories of my own characters in in the first uh, half dozen or so volumes. And then I just got too busy with everything else going on. So I've continued to edit Wild Cards, and uh, that's a great joy um, for relatively little money, you know, which it, you had asked questions before about money and all that. I mean, sometimes you do things that don't make you a lot of money. They're, they're labors of love. You know, I love the world of the world cards and I love the world of, uh, the thousand worlds. There's a lot of me in them. There's a lot of, uh, you know, my imagination and my heart and my dreams and characters that I created that, uh, um, will always be part of me. Um, and this isn't, should not be taken as some of the, fans do as to be me saying i don't love westeros or the right. device fire of course i do of course of course i do but I, I'm, I'm allowed to love more than one thing uh, <laughs> um, not on this show so um yeah um i don't know legacy i guess we'll have to um stand for itself I'm not going to be around 100 years from now. I don't know if they're going to reading and all that. But I look at somebody at Tolkien, and I'm I'm pleased by it. I mean, it, it it's amazing that uh, Tolkien is still being read, and they're still making movies and television shows based on his books. And you know, he died in the uh, the 70s, uh, the 1970s, just as my career was starting. His life was ending. Um, but I, what would he feel today about? You know, Rings of Power or the Peter Jackson movies. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't like them. Maybe he would. But um, I think it's it's kind of cool that his work lives on in that way. And you never know what's going to live on or not. I mean, ultimately, the, the posterity is uh, the thing that judges the, uh, an author's legacy. I mean, H.P. Lovecraft uh, died in 1937 in in abject poverty. Um, he was he was eating nothing but expired cans of canned food, you know, beans, 
but he, he would get them cheaper if they were past their sell-by date or whatever they called it back then. And he didn't have a, um, according to some accounts I've read, he didn't even have a means of heating the beans in his uh, little room that he lived in at the end of life. You know, he would open, he would eat a can of cold beans, expired cold beans um, at the end of his life. But talk about someone who lived only for his art and was, you know, consumed by it. He, he rejected many opportunities to make money or have any commercial success. But the point is, he died in such enormous poverty. Uh, but we're, he's still influential today. Every later horror writer is influenced by Lovecraft. Yeah. Even people who hate Lovecraft are influenced by him in, in other ways. And if you go back to 1937, the year he died, and look at the bestseller lists and see what were the biggest books and the biggest authors of 1937, uh, in most cases you'll say, who? the hell was that? <laughs> I've never heard of him. I've never heard of this book. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> but Lovecraft's still being read. Um, I do not plan to uh, die eating cans of cold <laughs> beans, however, so I'm glad I'm spared that part. But I hope that people are still reading the books. Uh, but I know I have to finish them. Um, no pressure. No. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us what you're working on with Winds of Winter, like who you're riding in Winds of Winter right now? Well, I, I'm still struggling with this Tyrion chapter that I uh, mentioned. So right, that's where you're at. That's the one I'm, um, you know, going on right there. I, you know, I don't write the the uh, the chapters in the order that you read them. Right. If I get in a groove on a particular character, I may write two, three chapters about that character, and then. And go back and write something else. So um, I will say that uh, there's a lot of Tyrion in this book, and I, I think um, there's a big headline for you, which everybody <laughs> would rip out of proportion here. But um, I think I'm close to the finishing the Tyrion arc in Winds of Winter. I think this chapter, maybe one further chapter, and I won't be done with the book, but I'll be done with Tyrion's rule in this particular book. And then I'll have to focus on another character. Some of whom are also close, some of whom are not at all close. <laughs> so, um, and then hopefully it all fits together, and I don't know. I do a lot of rewriting on these, a lot of rewriting, and uh, a lot of moving the chapters around in the right order, you know. I'm, there's a lot of factors that go into, uh, you know, which chapter should follow which chapter, the time frame, time passage, but also considerations of uh, suspense or, you know, spoilers. You know, oh, God, I can't do that. That spoils something I haven't done in that ch his chapter. I have to go before that. Yeah, so it's, I'm a gardener, not an architect. The plants go wild sometimes. Got to let that lawn flourish on its own. Yeah. Can you talk about, so when you're writing Ice and Fire, you're writing character by character. And like you just said, you spend a lot of time with a particular character, then you move on. When you're writing Fire and Blood or something else, that process is obviously different. And so, can you talk about Fire and Blood is much more chronologically. Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, this is the year 105. What happened in 105? What happened in 106? You know, and I do sometimes skip. Okay, you know, I, I can't take it year by year. It would it'd be 47 <laughs> books. Someone but, uh, was born there. There, there are some particularly crucial years where a lot of things happened, as as you've seen from reading the book. I mean, something like the Year of the Three Queens. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot. A lot happened in that year, and uh, but then I can say, uh, all right, then you know the next important thing didn't happen until four years later, etc. Yep. But it's it's much more 
chronologically oriented. I do sometimes have to, uh, you know, in my putting on my Archmaster Gildane hat, I have to change gears a little, like um, talking about Dorn, which doesn't get a lot of, in, in Gildane is not paying a lot of attention to Dorn, but every once in a while Dorn shoves its way in, and Gildane in a somewhat curmudgeonly says, it is not the purpose of this book to consider the history of the Dornish. <laughs> However, <laughs> in this particular point in time, we have to pay attention because, uh, you know, uh, a new princess came to, to the Sunspear and uh, she would have a powerful impact on what happened in the realm. So, you know, then I kind of go back and forward, you know, trying to write it as, uh, as Gildane would write it. Right. We've talked about before, I guess we've talked about it over the past, like, really the course of the whole podcast, how neat it must be to be in a situation like you're in to have a book series that you're currently working on be shown on the screen. I mean, when we talk about other authors that we've enjoyed that have had their stuff adapted for everyone to see, it's often... If, like, for example, J.K. Rowling was getting chased with the movies that were coming out, and she wrote the books ahead of the movies, and it stayed on that same pace. But with you, you've been able to see stuff that isn't canon, or maybe canon. We, we can we can verify if you want, but um, you've been able to watch that happen while you're still working on it. And I, to me, I think that that's a really interesting circumstance to be in. For you, do you get any kind of benefit from that, or is it a headache, or what is that for you? Well, as with many other things, it's it's complicated. Um, it is, I think, a fairly unique. I don't think anyone's had it before. Situation. I it, it's certainly not one I anticipated. Yeah. Um, you know, when when uh, the the series uh, got going, I mean, obviously, we were a few years in in uh, um, development and and. Pr- pre-production and all that. And we made the pilot and uh, HBO didn't necessarily like it. We had to remake parts of the pilot, et cetera. Um, but most of that, I had four books published at that point uh, during the early development phase. And I was working on the, f- the fifth book, A Dance with Dragons, which was late. Um, but the show came on and Dance with Dragons came out both in, in 2011. Um, and at that point, I thought, I only have two more books to do, and um, the show has five books to adapt, some of them very long, um, and I I did not think they would ever catch up to me, but um, obviously they, they did. Um, and that was, uh, that took some getting used to uh, when they, when they caught up with me. Um, and I think it was fairly unique in, in the history of, uh, of television or, or or film, and I I haven't done any research on this. You you guys are Harry Potter fans, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, w- was Rowling finished the entire series yeah. before they did the first movie? No, but no. the movies never outpaced the series. Yeah. So she finished book seven before the seventh movie came out. Okay. So she was okay. always a couple steps ahead, but that was a unique situation and it's not necessarily one that i would i would recommend um obviously i i would have liked to have finished and and i thought i could finish um 
at least wins winter and maybe the entire series by like uh, 2015 or so. And, uh, you know, that was four years ahead and it, it seemed to have all the thing in the world. But, you know, we could do an entire show here, uh, another two hours about uh, exactly everything that happened in 2011 and 2012 and 2013, you know, um, and uh, there were a number of factors in there. But um, still, um, it is what it is, and I'm I'm finishing. I I don't want um, I don't want the uh, to be influenced by by the show. Really, I mean, some of the stuff they did in the show, as I've said in many previous interviews, are are things that I told Dave and Dan that I would be building towards, um, but. That was in a conversation like this when they visited Santa Fe for, for three days, and we hit on a few major things, um, but there were a lot of other things. And as I've said in my interviews, I'm a gardener. Some of this stuff, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, it comes to me when I'm writing it, and sometimes it doesn't come to me. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm touching this in a blog post. It'll be out in a few days, but. Where does this stuff come from? You know, you tell me. Is it a right brain, left brain thing? Do <laughs> yeah. I have a muse? Um, is it the id or the super ego? Who, who the hell knows? I know. I'm sitting there. I'm writing, and I get an idea, and uh, you know, something inspired it. Sometimes I know what inspired it, like visiting Hadrian's Wall in 1981. Uh, my first visit to the UK, I, I stood on that wall, and it had I don't know profound effect on me that came back to me 10 years later when I started writing it. And I I love the idea of this wall, of course, and I, I turned it up. But other times I don't know where the ideas come from. And sometimes they take me in the wrong direction. I mean, I have a whole chapter that I wrote, uh, you know, back in uh, for Dance with Dragons of uh, um, Tyrion in, in the Sorrows and uh, the Shrouded Lord. And um, um, it was a good chapter. I liked that chapter, but it, it, it took the story in the wrong direction and introduced a whole new element. It, it, it took us away from, you know, and I kept trying to work it in. I, uh, okay, I'll put it in. No, I can't, it doesn't work in. I'll break it up into, into, no, I'll do it as a dream chapter. No, that doesn't work either. I'll, I'll break it up into six dreams. Tyrion <laughs> will be haunted by a recurring dream. Yeah. And I'll put a little bit in one chapter and oh, that doesn't work either. You know, and I finally had to take it out, but, um, things things occur um sometimes frustrating for us gardeners we don't <laughs> we don't quite know what's growing the, the architect who has outlined the whole book in detail ahead of time uh and is just touching all the bases has an advantage there and and you know sometimes i get to a I get to a, a chapter and, and I need something. I need what's going to happen here. And fucking Muse is silent. Mm. And I have to put it aside and uh, go to a different chapter. But then maybe six months later, suddenly there it is. It came. But what if it doesn't come? I mean, I live in fear of that like uh, like many people did. I, I had a... I had an idea. This will this will drive you people crazy listening to stuff these egg things. <laughs> About a month ago, just out of nowhere, um, the 
perfect ending for a particular character came to me. It would be in Dream of Springs, not not um, Winds of Winter, but yeah, yeah. And wait, why are you giving me ideas for Dream of Spring? I'm not there yet. You know? <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Muse. <laughs> but it's there, and I'm going to remember it. And when I get there, I think it's um, it's going to be strong. It's going to be powerful. It's what what I need to do. It's appropriate. So, um, so this writing thing is a is an interesting kind of. Uh, game do you write that down like that inspiration for dream of spring is is there like a no maybe i should i do <laughs> have pages of notes anywhere. and things like that i have um but mostly it's it's in my head so um yeah well because you have so many characters i mean earlier you were talking about you know the targaryen kings you wrote them down and then they kind of eventually came to life and so you've got so many characters and storylines in a song of ice and fire and then across as we're talking about this world that you're building right so how do you keep those things straight and then you know don't forget that dream of spring idea you know those like how do you kind of organize all of that yeah i i probably don't do a very good job of organizing it i mean i i talked earlier about armageddon rag and my other uh novels my early novels um basically each of those took about a year to write and I never had much notes because I could just remember it all. I mean, I'm, I'm writing a story and here are the characters. And uh, yeah, it did take me a year to write, but I'm, I'm pretty much working on nothing else but that thing for a year. And I just remembered them. And, you know, when, when I first sold um, the trilogy, it was supposed to be a trilogy in the beginning, you know. Um, even then, Winds of Winter was part of it. It was going to be Game of Thrones, A Dance with Dragons, and Winds of Winter. Um, and... My first contract with my publishers back in 1994 was I would deliver these books one year apart. And, oh uh, you know, so I, I, the whole thing would have been done by 1997 or 8 if uh, I had uh, come through with that. But, of course, no. <laughs> we're glad. <laughs> I, I, yeah, we're glad. That fell apart very quickly. I mean, I, I was writing Game of Thrones, and I was writing it, and I was writing it. And, you know, at a certain point, I said, oh, I have... I have like 1,200 pages here, and I don't have, I'm not even close on some of these characters. I better uh, reorganize that. And then, oh, okay, it's, it's, it's a four-book trilogy. <laughs> I had precedent on that because my, my dear friend, Gene Wolfe, who died a few years ago, grandmaster of science fiction, he, uh, when I lived in Chicago, uh, Gene and I went to the workshop together, and he was writing the uh, um, Book of the New Sun which uh, I was in the writer's workshop with him. It was a trilogy. And then it became a four-book trilogy. Gene would joke about it. Yeah. That's my four-book <laughs> trilogy. Um, and now I have my seven-book trilogy, uh -huh. if I can indeed finish it in seven books. But there it is, yeah. We, we, go on. I was just going to say we love the uh, addition, additions to the trilogy, so <laughs> keep adding them. And, and on, in that energy, um, do you think that it might go beyond seven? Could you go beyond seven books? Well, in a sense, it already has with Duncan Egg and and Fire and Blood the, and the key and, and all clutch. of that. Um, the ma the main Ice and Fire. I, yeah. I hope not. I I hope not. I mean, honestly, these are these are these are big books. Yeah. Um. It is conceivable, and I will not know. This is not a definite answer. Okay, but um. That. Winds of Winter might be a bigger book than 
either Storm of Swords or Dance with Dragons, which are the two biggest books. Mm. And I'm not talking 10 pages bigger. I'm talking 300 pages bigger or something like that. Now, if that happens, um, my publisher might want to divide it into two books. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's already gone beyond seven. They might say, this is too long. We can't fit it. So your choice is to cut it, <laughs> you know, go through and, and, and trim it and tighten it down, lose 300 pages, or to divide it into uh, multiple books. Um, and then I'll, I will have to wrestle with that, uh, situation when it, uh, when it comes up, but first I have to finish it and see exactly how long it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, is there any place to divide it? Does the publisher want to divide it or they want to publish it? I may have different, you know, I, it, it has happened before that the, my American publisher decides to go one way and my British publisher decides right. to go another way. And, and then, you know, you get into situations like in other countries like France or Italy where they divide it into six books. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Um, well, for the publishers out there, we'll read a 1,500-page hard copy. Yeah. No problem. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll read a 1,900-page hard copy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if they split it, would they, would they call it two different things or would it just be the ones of winter part one and two? That would then be discussed. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, you can split it into two books, but you can release it as one. You can have two volumes right. in a slipcase yeah. or something like that, and mm -hmm. then you then you do call it Winds of Winter 1, Winds of Winter 2. Mm -hmm. Or you you give the second part a different title, and you don't publish it simultaneously. You publish it six months later or a year later, and um, et cetera. You know, this is the situation I, I mean, this is not... A new situation. This is a situation I faced with um, a Dance with Dragons. I mm -hmm. mean, the, the fourth book was supposed to be a Dance with Dragons, and uh, again, it was late. I think you may have the theme by now that I'm, uh, <laughs> deadlines are not my uh, strong point. I like your style. <laughs> if I have a strong point, I don't know, but uh, deadlines are not it. So, food descriptions are your strong point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm. Um, you know, we reached a certain point in Dance with Dragons where I'm I'm talking with my publishers, and it was not a case of, uh, you know, again, what I said earlier, I, I don't write the book in the order in which you read it. Mm -hmm. I write certain characters. So we're looking at the manuscript that I had at a, at a certain point around, I guess it was like 2005, 2006, and um, I'm finished with certain characters, and I've hardly started with other characters. So, you know, this thing, well, can we cut off the book chronologically? I mean, we had this discussion. Can we just start with the events and, you know, we cover a year or two years or whatever and then go that? Then you're going to be halfway through the story on all the characters. Mm -hmm. um, and it was uh, Daniel Abraham, actually, who uh, we're having supper with tonight mm -hmm. uh the uh who had been in a writer's group with me here and and daniel of course is is half of james s.a corey who did expanse is a marvelous fantasy writer in his own right he suggested when i was you know talking about this, the dilemmas i'm facing with some of my friends he said don't don't divide it chronologically divide it geographically and then i said yes i can finish <laughs> i can finish the stuff that's happening in King's Landing and Westeros and all that, I can finish that very quickly and we will have a, a book. Mm -hmm. And then I can 
switch gears and do the other stuff that's happening in the other continent, and we do that book. Um, and that's what happened, and that's how we got Feast for Crows and um, A Dance with Dragons. Now, was that the right decision? I, I, I don't know. I mean, you guys are the fans. You can tell me here. I know a lot of fan sites have published their own versions of the combined reading thing. We made our we own, made too. Our own oh, did well. you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Going back and forth between them. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And have you tested that on anyone? We, is, is there anyone who had not previously read the books, who reads yeah. the books with your order, and does it work for them? Yeah. 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 Is yeah. that annoying to you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we know, I mean, some of our listeners could chime in online, but we have had a handful of folks who had never read, you know, because I think some of our listeners jumped in watching the show first. And so this was their first opportunity and they read alongside with us with the combined reading order. But the two of us read your published order, you know, I right. think that that's the true way. But <laughs> I think it's a, a fun experience. Um, it's like with all the rest of your art, like we have an opportunity to play in Westeros in so many different ways. And that's just another way to play in Westeros. So, I mean, if, if, you know, the part of me, the, the an artist part of me putting one commercial considerations aside, maybe splitting the book was not the best thing to do. But if I did not split the book, considering how much is done, then there would not have been a book in 2006, I think, whenever right. Feast came out. You would have been waiting till 2008, I think, at least, to have the combined thing. And what would that have done, um, I don't know, to the readership? I mean, you always have these commercial considerations, too, when your publisher is saying, you know, you're going to, you have a lot of momentum, but the last book was several years ago. You don't want to, you don't want to take too long. The next book has to come, come out or people are going to forget about it. A lot of other books are coming out. So there's pressure on you from that sense. Oh, I got to get some sort of book out, you know, I, I had an argument, uh, with another fantasy author. I won't give any names. Um, cause I don't want to be perceived as attacking other writers. Um, but Back in the days of, uh, God, I was on the online service Genie in, in the old <laughs> days. Uh, and, uh-huh. and I remember I, I got in this argument with another fantasy writer. I was, I was saying something about the struggles I was going through. And he was saying, ah, what are you worrying about this for? I just, I just, uh, I think a thousand pages is enough. I just write a thousand pages and I give it to him. And uh, <laughs> here it is, publish it. What if you're in the middle of everything? And uh, I'm a thousand pages long enough, just publish it. And then, then, then you know, next chapter picks up and then, you know. So you're just writing this one long thing without any structure and you're just chopping it off every once in a while. Here's another chunk. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Yeah. I, I wanted each story to have a, it's not an end because you're you're going for the big end, but to, you know little ends, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it's it's hard to do this. It's not easy to write these books. I mean, sometimes I wonder if the people who are so um, you know angry about this online realize uh, you know quite how hard it is, and uh, it is. Uh, challenging and uh, you know could i do it I, I don't think i could ever do it you know that they point out to other writers who are doing a book a year um okay but i i couldn't do these as a book a year i you know and and i could never yes i did write my first four novels each in about one year but um this one no 
it's, it's too damn big. It, it's at this point, it's like 12 novels that are woven together. Um, and, um, yeah. So each of these chapters are like many books as well. Yeah. Especially some of these fire and blood chapters are <laughs> dense. So <laughs> what is lost of happening? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And honestly, as I write fire and blood, I mean, I enjoy the, the history and Gildane and everything I've done in the variant versions, mm-hmm. but as I write those things, there's part of me that says I could do an, I could do a whole novel about this. Sure. Why am I, you know, why am I doing, <laughs> I, I mean, there are certain characters in it who, who just jump it up at you and say, this, this character could sustain his or her own, own novel, uh, or, or these three characters or this particular event in time. Um, but I got to take it one day at a time. Here. Right. Yeah. What comes to mind for me is Aria. Is that how you say her name? When she takes Balerion and disappears for a year. Right. She wanted to ever write a novel about that. I think there might be some fans <laughs> about where she goes and what she sees. So. <laughs> Where'd she go, George? <laughs> well, I think there's a strong hint of where she goes. Right. Yes, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty there. I don't, I don't know. There, there are some things I might not ever want to actually reveal. Um, because I do think some mysteries are better left mysteries because any answer you can give is not, uh, good or is not, is not as good as the, as the mystery. I mean, I thought about mentioned HP Lovecraft earlier. I think one of, one of the, the things about Lovecraft's stories that gives them so much power is he, he, he hints, he suggests he, he, something really horrible is happening, but you don't really get a, 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 a good description of it. And, and it, it works on your subconscious yeah. somehow it disturbs you. And, and then you read later horror writers and it's all gore and it's a guy with a hatchet and he's chopping off your head or, you know, it's a vampire or it's something very specific that, you know, could make for a good story. I've written vampires myself, but it doesn't have the visceral power that uh, that Lovecraft has, and I I I do think there's um, I know fans and readers realize that this is fiction, right? <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> it's more obvious to us now that we're sitting here. We've been we've been hanging out with you, and it's like, oh yeah, this is all in his head. It's not real. I mean. Tolkien was obviously another of the authors that had enormous influence on me. I love Tolkien. Um, but in some ways, he was a real anomaly compared to most authors. I mean, the detail with which he did his world building and, and the history of Numenor and, and uh, you know, the first age and the second age mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. Um, it was exhaustive for the time and changed fantasy forever. If you, it, I mean, fantasy goes back to, you know, Gilgamesh and, and, and things like that. But if you, if you look at the pre-Tolkien fantasy, it was all very, uh, fairy tale-ish. It was mm-hmm. once upon a time, there was a king and he had three beautiful daughters. Now the king doesn't have a name. His country doesn't have a name. Maybe the daughters get a name, but, uh, you know, uh, and then they went to the land of fairy and uh, stories like that could be very good and all that. But Tolkien made it so gritty and realistic and he and he uh he built lord of the rings and and to a lesser extent the hobbit on the basis of all this work he'd done in cimmerillion 
course, but if you then if you go on, you read the unfinished tales and his notes, and you realize how much he struggled with that. Even he was revising things and changing things. I mean, imagine what a different world we live in if when they when they get to Bree, they don't meet Strider, they meet Trotter, the adventurous <laughs> hobbit. <laughs> Where does the story go if you have Trotter instead of Strider? <laughs> Very different directions, but Tolkien wrote a lot of that, and then he went back. But the point is, wow. <laughs> I get I get occasional emails or something from uh, um, a reader who will say, "Oh, I'm I'm very curious about Ulthos, the continent. What what can you tell me about Ulthos on the edge of the map there?" And you know, my answer is nothing. <laughs> I, if we go to Ulthos, I will make up something. I hope it'll be good. <laughs> if I make it up and it's sort of lame and stupid, I I'll I'll try to make up something else because. You know, first ideas are usually, but you know, there is no Ulthos. I, <laughs> I just thought I'll stick something in at the corner of my <laughs> Don't say that. No. <laughs> You're hurting me now. Yeah. I know, I'm, I'm losing all the fans. Right, you, built we built our whole, like, <laughs> <laughs> everything life that's happened this. in the books comes from what's happening in Ulthos, right. really. <laughs> now that's a scoop. I think I invented yeah. half those lands, of course, because of uh, the map book. You know, we did. Yeah. Uh, we did Lands of Ice and Fire a few years ago. These are the, the secrets of publishing that'll probably shock your listeners who think it's all real. But um, so we've done the World of Ice and Fire, which had done well. And, and, and so my publisher says to me, oh, wait, let's do a map book. The maps are very popular. And, oh, okay, that's not fun. We'll do a map book. So I had these maps that I'd hand-drawn on, on typing paper, mm -hmm. you know, and I'd been adding to them over the years. And so... I had, you know, I not only had the north and the south, but I, ha I had a little little stuff from the free cities. And all. I, I sent them all to Bantam. And they they blew them all up and said, well, these are nice, but when we blow up the poster sizes, they're kind of blank. <laughs> Can you, like, put in more stuff? <laughs> you know, cities and rivers and mountains and stuff. So, you know. So I did. I, I I went back and I put in a lot more stuff. And and you know, Chris, as I'm putting in stuff, that fucking muse in the yep. back of my uh -huh. head is, yep. is thinking, "Oh, that's good. Yeah, look at that. There'd be a story there. Oh, that might be a, that'd be interesting. You know." And and I'm I'm venting all this damn stuff. Um, and I sent it to them, and it, it it goes you know pretty much as far as Karth. You know, I've 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 done all this. And that's fine. And then my editor calls me up and said, well, it's, it's great, but um, we noticed something. We, there's this uh, scene where um, they, they, uh, the Carthane, the uh, Zarazon Doxos, I think it is, gives, gives Danny a big tapestry of the entire world on it. I said, yeah, I, I remember that scene. Yeah. Carth is in the middle. Yes, Carth is in the middle. Well, it's only on the edge of your maps. The readers are going to want to know what's on the other side of Karth. So could you do more maps to, <laughs> to fill out the rest? And you've mentioned these places. Let's see them. So, you know, so now I'm doing maps that, you know, and I know Ashai had to be on there. It had been mentioned many times. And a few mentions of Yeti and Lang. So I'm putting them in. And then, you know, I'm, I'm what are the cities named? What are the mountains named? You know, at, at a certain point, I, I, 
my brain was rotting, so I started stealing things from Lovecraft and, you know, Carcosa, which is uh, actually from Robert W. Chambers, The Yellow King, but Lovecraft yeah. borrowed it. And, uh, oh, that's a good name for a city. I'll put in Carcosa. I'll put in Lang, of course. I made it an island. It's a plateau in Lovecraft, a horrible plateau, but it seemed a good name with a ring. I did tell you the truth, I didn't know that anybody would even notice, but uh, oh, I zoom right in to that area. I'm like, there, okay, there it is. And you know, then at some point, I guess I thought, well, I can't just have ash eye with nothing but sea below it. There should be another. So I put in a little corner of Althos there. <laughs> <laughs> and there's still, of course, you've noticed that there's still more mm-hmm. map. So you know, I do yeah. get well. What's beyond the gray wastes, and what's what's what is the shape of Althos? What is it? And, uh, you know, I don't know, if I live to 105 and uh, the story takes us there, or one of these these other shows takes us there, I, I will make up stuff that hopefully will be good stuff if my muse uh, cooperates and uh, throws up some fun stuff for me. It's about our time, guys. I know. I don't think Can we got we... to any of your questions. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I've got one last question for you, though. Okay. Who your favorite character is in A Song of Ice and Fire? <laughs> I got a better one. No. How will Kristen Cole save Dorne? Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, did you look but, up that article? Yeah. We looked it last night. Yeah, we looked at it. <laughs> so, but, I mean, it's been amazing to have this conversation with you and to spend some time with you in Santa Fe. And we just, like, appreciate all of your time and hope that Oh, my pleasure. We it's can been have fun. You back sometime. So it's been fun. Yeah. Next time that you drag us down here, can we do this interview in a hot air balloon? <laughs> <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I had one of those in Armageddon Ranch. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put the Eye of Sauron on it and everything. Okay. But maybe if we uh, do one in on the Mississippi, we can do it on a riverboat. No, oh, that's do it. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs>